This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. I'll start reading in just a moment from verse 19. If you brought your own Bible, then great. If you don't have your own Bible with you, then there should be a hardback black one like this one I'm holding up here in my hands and maybe a seat back that's close by to you. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 11, verse 19, you'll find it on page 865, 865. Uh, today, we're, we're diving in, back in, to the storyline that unfolds uh, in the book of Acts which is the story of the beginning of the Christian church. Uh, There was that very first day of Pentecost, a particular day on the calendar, the Jewish calendar, that was a big day for their celebration. Uh, And this was a day on which uh, God poured out his spirit and the first, to record it at least, the first public gospel presentation was made. And many people turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This happened in Jerusalem. And then it expanded out from there to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding area, the region around Jerusalem. Uh, Then from there, as we recently looked and studied, we saw that even those who were considered the ends of the earth, the the Gentiles who were who were far out, those who were foreign to the covenants that God had made with Israel, that even those people were ones that God was drawing to himself and giving his spirit. Uh, giving them the same promises of life and salvation, the same promises of the forgiveness of sins and the presence of God, uh, even to those who were of the ends of the earth. Following that pattern that we saw Jesus articulate at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says to his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit empowers you to do it, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then all the way to the ends of the earth. Well, we're carrying on with that pattern uh, here this morning, and we see not just uh, Cornelius and his his household, those who were gathered around with him. He he gathered up, it seems, all of those he, he loved and knew well in in one place so they could hear this message that pre, that Peter preached uh, as we looked at just a long time, a short time ago in, in Acts chapter 10. They heard the gospel. They responded with faith, with belief, with trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God confirmed their conversion, their their being saved by granting them the same spirit, his spirit, that he had given to those Jewish converts on the day of Pentecost at the very beginning. And we see the further expansion here in Acts chapter 11, particularly in the passage we're going to be in today. Acts chapter 11 is looking at now this further extension of the gospel. And what I'd like for us to think on here this morning, the, the, the time that we'll be devoting to uh, the, the sermon today we'll be thinking on what does it look like when the gospel goes out? Uh, This is going to be the kind of a a bit more of a full expansion of of step-by-step seeing how the gospel comes to an area, what happens from there, how does it, uh, what does it establish, what happens in the lives of those who are converted, how does that look in the whole context of that community? We're really seeing that unfold in a way we haven't seen it, uh, at least in such detail. So what does it look like? As the gospel comes to an area, what kind of changes are made? What are what structures are established and how does it affect the lives of those who hear the gospel for what it is? 
Well, with that as a, a brief introduction, uh, let's look now to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. Would you all mind standing with me as I read Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 13, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. Uh, standing is just one of the ways that we show respect for God's word, and we'll do that while we read the primary passage. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in, the days, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. Uh, the main point that I would like to, uh, I believe, is uh, the main point of this passage. I'm seeking to draw this from the text here in the context of the overall book of Acts and in the context of what the book of Acts is doing for us as Bible readers generally. Uh, so I'm drawing this point out of what we've just read here today in its context, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached by everyday Christians, that it creates local churches which are animated by Christ's spirit, governed by Christ's word and motivated by Christ's love. This is one of those longer main points as I am want to put up there for you. If you like to write those down and you didn't, you don't feel like you've got enough time to do that. Don't worry. It's on the inside of the bulletin for you. Once again, uh, on that right hand flap, you can see it there and I'll refer back to it as we progress throughout today. There'll be five points that I'd like to make as we basically walk through the passage this morning. First, seeing how the Lord used unnamed evangelists. Secondly, seeing how the gospel created a local church. Thirdly, the new church being confirmed and exhorted. Fourthly, that the church was taught and organized. And then fifth and finally, that the church showed love and generosity as its response. So let's just look back at verses 19 and 20 as we just kind of walk through this passage together. And let's recall, for those of us who've been here for a little while, we, we may remember what was happening earlier in the book of Acts, or maybe this is your first time to be here on a Sunday, and so the Acts storyline is not as familiar to you as, as maybe some of the rest of us. Let's just remember for a moment that there was significant persecution happening in Jerusalem and in the broader region around uh, Judea. Uh, this happened on the heels of really the fever pitch of persecution that, that, uh, that came to its climax with Stephen. 
Uh, so Stephen was uh, a, an honorable Christian uh, who was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, a good man, essentially, uh, who was singled out by uh, those who were in uh, the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem. And he was singled out for persecution. You can read more about that, about this in Acts chapter six and on in through uh, chapter seven. We were also introduced at that time to a man named Saul at the conclusion of Stephen's uh, death, his, his murder uh, at the hands of those who were persecuting him. We were told that there was a man named Saul. This is in Acts chapter eight, verse one, who approved of Stephen's execution. And we're even told there in Acts chapter eight, verse one, that it was apparently Saul who was sort of the spearhead of a great persecution that was then unleashed on all the Christians there in Jerusalem and and even further out. So this was the the persecution that we're reading about in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. That's, That's what Luke is referring us back to. Hey, remember that time when there was persecution going on and there was the the scattering of those Christians there in Jerusalem and in Judea and the surrounding area. Now, those who fled Jerusalem were, were possibly, I want to say probably, they were Greek-speaking Jews. You might remember in Acts chapter 6 that there was this, this problem that arose between those that were referred to as the Hellenists and the Hebrews, those that were Greek-speaking Jews and those who were uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews, those who had grown up as, as uh, Jewish uh, in Jewish culture and language and all of that. Uh, there was some problem that arose, and that was where Stephen and uh, other uh, fellows were, were kind of brought up in order to solve this problem, to make sure that those who were of Greek culture, Greek-speaking Jewish converts to Christianity, weren't being left out in the daily distribution. Well, we were introduced to these, these distinctions, or this one distinction and these distinctive terms, of those who were Greek-speaking Jews or Hellenists, Hellenistic Jews, Grecian Jews, depending on your translation back in Acts chapter 6 to those who were Hebrews or native Hebrews or Hebraic Jews. There, the distinction was between Jewish converts, both of them, so those who were Jewish by ethnicity, descendants of Abraham, who were converted to Christianity, some of them Greek-speaking and others not so, more true to their Jewish roots, you might say. That was the distinction in Acts chapter 6. Here, the word is used again, Hellenists, but Hellenists just, it literally means Greek-speaking. So the idea was it was someone that was more of a Greek culture than any other, which was what most everybody was in the Roman slash Greek world of that time. Alexander the Great made sure that everyone was Hellenized, Greekized, uh, that they had Greek culture, Greek language, that they essentially assimilated into the culture that he had established. It seems to me that those who had that particular cultural, you might think of all the, the uh, cultural baggage that they would carry along with them, that those are the ones who face the most significant amount of persecution or most direct persecution there in Jerusalem. You don't have to agree with me on that. I'm just saying I suspect that was probably the way that it happened as it sort of rolled out. And these were the Jews then who were scattered about in Judea and further out that Luke is telling us about here in Acts chapter 11. That there was the scattering of persecuted Jewish Christians, probably I think most of them Greek-speaking or Greek in their culture, that were scattered about all throughout Judea and the extended area. And some of them were told in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. These were, these were places far away from Jerusalem. Some traveled just that far. 
to get away from persecution. But we know that as they traveled, as they were scattered about, it wasn't just the fleeing persecution that they were doing. They were also carrying with them the very word that had been given to them by God through Peter as he shared the gospel there in Jerusalem. That there were these Jewish converts from Jerusalem. They were being persecuted, now scattered about. And as they went, they continued to preach the word. We're told this in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, and also right here in our own, in our own text this morning. But in verse 19, Luke distinguishes between two different kinds of word scatterers. So in Acts chapter 11, Luke is distinguishing not between those who are Jewish, uh, both Jewish, but one culturally Jewish and the other culturally Greek. He's distinguishing between the targets of evangelism, the targets of word ministry. And in one case, those who were scattered as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, they only spoke the word to Jews. That is, those who were descendants of Abraham, those who shared the same ethnic lineage as them. Luke doesn't tell us how many Jewish converts turned to to Christ through these evangelistic efforts, because Luke is not concerned so much with all of the evangelistic efforts that went about. He's really trying to show the reader what happened when some of them preached the word to Hellenists, not only to Jews. Hellenists or Grecians or Greeks, once again, literally Greek speakers. So it seems here that we're warranted as readers to look and see, okay, he's using the same word, which literally translated means Greek speakers, but he's not here dividing between Jews who have certain culture, a Greek culture, and others that have a Jewish culture. He's distinguishing here between ethnicity. He's distinguishing here between those who are of Abraham's descent, Jewish, and those who are not. He's talking here about Gentiles, it seems. This is the distinction that Luke is giving us. And he's telling us that some of those who were scattered about from Jerusalem because of persecution, as they went about preaching the gospel, as as they did, some of them preached the gospel, not just to their Jewish ethnic uh, relatives, but some of them crossed the ethnic bridge. Some of them spoke to those who were other, those who were far off, those who were not of the covenant of Moses. And another really interesting aspect of these who did bridge that divide is that they go on unnamed. They were nobodies. These evangelists that Christ used in Antioch, in verse 20, they're nobodies. What does Luke tell us about them? He says, but there were some of them, some of those scattered about by, by persecution, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, or Cyrene, two Greek towns that were, again, far away from Jerusalem and from Antioch. Uh, so not only were they, were they being scattered about from their place where they were living, Jerusalem, Judea, but they were even you know, far from home, even uh, there in Jerusalem. So they're, they're, they're scattered about, they're, they're away from their home in more ways than one. And these unnamed men, we're told, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also. They didn't just keep their message for their Jewish brethren. Luke tells us in verse 20 that what they did was preached the Lord Jesus. Now, what we're going to do in our time together this morning, Lord willing, is is study a bit more about what happened uh, when they did that. But let's take just a minute here to consider the encouragement and the challenge that we see when some unnamed guys go and share the gospel. 
Christianity, I want to argue, is a religion of nobodies. Brothers and sisters, there is no buying your way in. Your social status is nullified by the universal condition of sin and our universal dependence, this universal dependence we all have upon Christ. Even our political or our national affiliation is overwhelmed and it is subject to our greater citizenship in Christ's kingdom, which has no earthly boundaries or limits. So whatever affiliation we might see of, of, of ours in this world that is time-bound or world-bound, uh, such things are overwhelmed by and subject to our universal relationship with Christ and fellow believers. This is why the scripture says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, here, that is among Christ's people, there is not Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Christianity is a religion of nobodies. The gospel message is a message to nobodies, from nobodies, about the greatest somebody in the whole universe. This should free us, I think, from our fear of man. When your friend hears the gospel and believes this good news and has love and affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and begins to follow him, it is not an affirmation of you. It is an affirmation of the Lord Jesus Christ and to his praise and his glory. So too, when you share, your, share the gospel with your friend or your family member and they reject the message, they don't see it as good news. They hate the idea of being subject to the law of God. It is not necessarily a rejection of you. It's a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a nobody sharing the message about the greatest somebody ever with another nobody. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes out by the mouths of everyday Christians. And what happens when these everyday Christians preach the gospel? Well, that's what this passage is all about. And point number two, the gospel created a church. I'm focusing especially in on verse 21, but I'm, I'm sort of dovetailing off of verse 20. These unnamed men were told in verse 20, they preached the Lord Jesus. And I'm seeing in that phrase that they preached the gospel, the message of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the message specifically of the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ as the Christ, as the Messiah. Now, the reason why I'm seeing all that shoved into that short phrase is because Luke, throughout the, the storyline of the book of Acts, he does not repeat in the same detail the gospel message every single time he alludes to it. But rather what he does is he uses kind of a shorthand of, of different ways of referring to that message, which was the core of what the apostles and the early Christians were sharing as the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So he refers uh, to it most frequently, that message that Jesus is the, the righteous one of God, that God's promise of sending a savior for a long time, uh, that this is, it is happening and has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's him, right? That was their message, that this is the one who's come to make all things right, to reconcile guilty sinners and offer forgiveness in his name, and also to judge everyone everywhere. So run him is the, the message. But this is most often, as Luke uh, sort of alludes to that message, he refers to it as the word. This is a phrase again and again repeated all throughout the book of Acts. So at Pentecost, 
Luke tells us in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that it was those who received his word, Peter's word as he preached it, that they were the ones who were baptized in association with the Lord Jesus Christ, recognized, publicly affirmed as Christians. At Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, Luke tells us that many of those who heard the word believed the word about Christ, the word of the gospel. And when persecution was ratcheting up in Jerusalem, the whole church gathered and prayed that God would grant that your servants, they prayed that God, God, make your servants continue to speak your word with all boldness. They wanted to be faithful gospel witnesses despite the persecution that was ratcheting up against them. And at each section break throughout the book of Acts, I've talked about this at other times, but it's fascinating how the book of Acts unfolds. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, for example, there's this section break where Luke tells us that the word of God continued to increase. Increase and multiply. The word does, the church does. This is how Luke sort of tells us what's happening at each section or each stage along the way as the gospel continues to advance. Christ's kingdom continues to advance. But it's the word of God. The word of the Lord, Acts chapter 9, 19, verse 20, continued to increase and prevail mightily. So when he refers to that they preached the Lord Jesus or that those who went about only speaking the word to those who were Jews, we see in that sort of the all of the luggage packed that this is the message of the gospel that's going out. That's what they preached. And that's the word that was brought to those folks in Antioch by these unnamed Christians who were just sharing the gospel with everyday folks there in Antioch. And what happened? Many of them believed. Many of the folks in Antioch, we're told in verse 21, believed. They believed and turned to the Lord, as Luke phrases it there in verse 21. Now, why did they do that? Was it because these unnamed guys were so compelling in their evangelistic efforts? Was it because their message was so fantastically put together? Why does Luke say that happened? Well, he tells us in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. And and how do we know that? Well, because a great number believed and turned to the Lord. This is a principle and even a, a doctrine which is seen repeated again and again all throughout the book of Acts. The gospel message is of a message of glorious and gracious salvation. And God, particularly as we see the book of Acts unfold and the rest of the New Testament teaches us the same, particularly the Holy Spirit is the one who grants the gifts of repentance and faith to some of those who hear the gospel. So the gospel goes out by these unnamed evangelists and God's hand is with them and he changes the hearts and the minds of some of those who hear the word and they believe and turn to the Lord. And that is, as I've tried to phrase it in the main point, that it's God's spirit, Christ's spirit, which animates, which brings to life, which moves sinners to believe and turn to the Lord Jesus, turn away from sin and toward discipleship. Brothers and sisters, especially those of you who are regulars uh, here at FBC Diana, we beat this drum a lot here, but we must continue to beat it because everyone and everything else around us and even our own hearts often within us urges us to think and expect the opposite. And if you want to see your friends converted, well, then learn my method of evangelism and apply it. Do you want to see more kids and teens following Christ? Well, here's how you can make your message relevant or yourself relevant. As if skinny jeans would make anybody relevant to anything. 
Do you want to see your membership numbers grow? Well, then follow these steps to revitalization and your church will grow. But the scripture urges us to be faithful and trust the Lord with the results. It teaches us to do the opposite of what the world teaches us to do. We should have gospel conversations with our friends. And maybe by God's grace, he'll change their hearts. We should teach and model for our own kids what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. And maybe by God's grace, he will transform the hearts of our kids. We should invite our unchurched family and friends to come along with us on a Sunday. And maybe as they see Christians being Christians, loving the Lord, loving one another. Maybe they will have their hearts warmed and drawn to the Lord Jesus. But in all of this stuff that we do, we should pray that God would give us fruit. That God would produce the results. That he would do the work that he can do, changing the hearts of sinners giving them affection and love for the Jesus they once hated. This is what God does. And, and uh, next on this uh, subpoint of uh, still in point number two, the believers in Antioch, they, they became a church. Now I'm going to try to explain this more as we go along. But let me just note here that Luke initially tells us only that there were a great number who, who believed and turned to the Lord. That's verse 21. It's not until verse 26 that he refers to these believers who were gathered there in Antioch as a church. However, I want to highlight the fact this whole passage is a picture of the kind of progress which the whole New Testament assumes and exemplifies and teaches regarding gospel expansion, conversion, and discipleship. Now, I'm saying some words that are churchy words uh, that we talk a lot about here at FBC Diana. So there are going to be some of us here today that for the time already, you've kind of seen me reveal my hand a little bit to you. And you're going, oh, my goodness, Mark's going to ring that bell. He loves to ring. And I am totally going to do it. Uh, but for some of you who are not regulars, this this may not be as familiar. We just see in the Bible, uh, God teach and exemplify and and correct the way that we're supposed to see Christianity unfold in the world. And I think a lot of people assume that the Bible doesn't teach on these things. Or they don't realize how much the Bible teaches on these things. So I just want to look at what really is Christianity 101 type stuff from the passage we see unfolding here in front of us, which may be revolutionary to some of us here in the room. But let me explain it like this, that the gospel expansion begins with the preaching of the gospel. We see that here, right? There there are unnamed evangelists who go and preach the gospel and many people turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So preaching the gospel or to maybe put it in the, in the way that Max Stiles does in his little uh, book on evangelism, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, which is what every Christian is called to do. This is the beginning of gospel expansion. It cannot happen apart from that. But believing and turning to the Lord, which we see happening in verse 21, we'll see more of what that means as the passage unfolds. And this is the New Testament language that carries with it the whole idea of Christian conversion which we often lose when we merely talk of making a decision for Christ or getting saved. Conversion includes repentance and trust in Jesus as Savior and baptism, which is the biblical way to be, to be public in your profession of faith. Uh, it includes a complete and comprehensive life practice of following Jesus, learning his words and applying them in everyday life. The Bible doesn't understand what we mean when we say that someone made a decision for Jesus but we can't really describe any, any way that their lives have been affected since then. The Bible just doesn't understand that. 
The Bible understands that as the gospel goes out, as people turn and believe the gospel and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that it has a life-changing, life-transforming effect in all of life. So then, we'll see as the passage unfolds further that there's the report of conversion. And it's not first cause for celebration, but first cause for investigation. Christian converts are exhorted to be faithful and organized into a local church, not merely assured of pardon or assured of forgiveness. Church members are taught what to believe and how to live. And church members are to believe and live in such a way so as to be observably associated with the Lord Jesus Christ in the community in which they live. We see all of this unfold as the passage continues on. Some of these things, like I said, we we talk a lot about, and I won't be able to touch on every single one of these aspects, but let's keep looking through this passage, walking through it together, and see how these these realities just sort of are are all all over the place. So point number three, confirmed and exhorted. The, The new church then is confirmed and exhorted, looking especially at verses 22 to 24. The report of conversions in Antioch, first, as I said before, it doesn't cause celebration immediately. The first response is, let's go check this out. Let's investigate this further. So Luke tells us in verse 22 that the report of this, the great number in Antioch, believing and turning to the Lord, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas, why don't you go check this out? See what's happening there. Now, something like this had happened before when Philip preached the gospel in Samaria and The apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria, this is Acts chapter 8, verse 14, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God and they sent Peter and John. So we have sort of a a pattern seemingly unfolding here. But this time, the reported converts were from a completely different background. So unlike when Philip was preaching the gospel in Samaria, these folks who were in Antioch were seemingly utterly Gentile fully immersed in the Greco-Roman culture and religion of the day. So Barnabas is going to check this out. Hey, this is a real curiosity. Not only is it those who have the same sort of uh, Jewish heritage that we do, who've come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah that God has been uh, talking about for forever. Not only have they realized that Jesus is the Christ, these folks didn't even know there was a Christ coming. And they are seemingly believing that there is a Christ and that Jesus is him. Barnabas, why don't you go check this out? So Barnabas visits. And at least in part, his visit was to investigate to see if the report was true. Now, friends, I recognize that this flies in the face of so much of what is commonly assumed and practiced among evangelicals in America and abroad today. Nearly universally, evangelical missionaries and churches today measure and market their success by sheer number. So it would have been like this if these were modern evangelicals sharing the gospel in Antioch. They would have sent the letter back to Jerusalem and they would have said a great number plus made decisions for Jesus here in Antioch. Why don't you send us some money so we can extend the effort here? Here are various needs that we have and look how successful we're being. The North American Mission Board which is a a sort of a section of the Southern Baptist Convention of which we are part, their next-gen director, next-generation director, 
recently celebrated his ministry efforts for 2021 by listing his praise report. So I'm just exemplifying. I'm showing you an example of the norm for evangelical missionaries and churches. This is the way he shared his praise report for the year. He preached or spoke at 128 events. He had a total attendance of more than 125,000, all all events combined. And at those events, he saw more than 10,500 professions of faith for salvation. This is the way that people talk about their success as evangelists, as missionaries, or even as churches who present their baptism numbers or their attendance numbers or their budget numbers or any other kind of numbers. And friends, it's not that we don't want to see more people following the Lord Jesus Christ, more people baptized into fellowship with local churches, publicly associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we want is to actively work against the kind of thinking that says you're successful if you can get a lot of people to an event or to respond positively to your message. We want to aim for a faithful gospel witness for true conversions and for healthy churches. And this, it seems, is exactly what Barnabas did and what the church in Jerusalem modeled for us in our passage. So what does Barnabas do? He goes down to Antioch and he confirmed in verse 23 that this indeed was God's gracious work. Verse 23 tells us when he, Barnabas, came to Antioch, he saw the grace of God. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what that looked like. He doesn't tell us, you know, specifically what Barnabas saw in front of him. But there wasn't merely a political movement or emotional sensationalism or a social attraction. We can guess that what he saw was something like what Paul witnessed later on in Corinth. When he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, that those he was writing to, he says that they were once sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, which means slanderers or blasphemers swindlers, which means cheats or liars, that these who once were defined by these kinds of characteristics had now become washed and sanctified and justified by the spirit of God. This is what it looks like to see the grace of God on display. Anyone can gather a crowd. But only God can transform lives, the lives of those who used to be marked by sin. And now they're marked by sanctification. And righteousness. Not perfection, of course, but life transformation, most certainly. Whatever evidence of conversion Barnabas saw there in Antioch, we're told in verse 23 that he was glad. And he apparently confirmed that these converts were indeed Christians. I think we can know that because of the exhortation that he gives them. He exhorted them not to believe in, trust in, turn from sin and trust in Jesus, but rather he exhorted them to remain faithful. This seems to carry with it the assumption that they were believing. They had faith to begin with. So Barnabas' exhortation is to remain faithful with a steadfast purpose or purpose of heart or with resolute heart, depending on your translation. Christians are those who are to believe or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to remain faithful to him. This is why the scripture can teach us elsewhere. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. It prods us and assures us both at the same time when it says, you 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the promise of the gospel. Friends, this is what it means to hear the good news. That is that you are guilty before God, that you are hostile in mind, naturally speaking, toward the commands of the Lord. But what Jesus does is he obeys God's commands fully on your behalf. He suffers underneath the penalty of judgment that you deserve in order that if you'll believe and trust and cling to him, then he will on that last day present you holy and blameless before God, not because of what you've done or who you are, but because of what he's done and who he is. This is the good news of the gospel. That's what he's just said here. This assures us, but not without also prodding us. The verse continues on. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Those who were saved are those who are being saved now and who will be saved in the future. Perseverance is a major feature of Christianity. And this is why Christian converts are to be exhorted to faithfulness and not only assured of pardon and forgiveness. First, because Jesus has actually given his people commands, rules to follow. So we need to be exhorted to faithfulness. Turning to Christ most certainly begins with simple faith or belief or trust in him as Savior. But no one who truly trusts in Christ can live as though he is not Lord of every aspect of our lives. Christian living is a comprehensive life of discipleship. Jesus is our teacher, our master, our king, and our guide, just as much as he is our savior. So we need to be exhorted because Jesus actually does give us commands which he intends us to follow as his people. But secondly, we need to be exhorted to faithfulness because, as I said already, perseverance is a vital characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. Now, some of us in this room are, are prone to self-loathing, are prone to shame and guilt. And so when I say something like what I'm about to say, those of you who are most kind of downcast in spirit are probably the ones who are going to, it's going to hit the hardest. And I don't intend for it to be that way. May you be comforted by the reality that God's love and grace and mercy for all sinners that he loves is not dependent on them. So if today you're wondering, how can God love me? Well, it's because he is so loving. It's not because you're so great. So because, just because you were really, really bad last week doesn't make his love any less powerful. Be assured. Not because of your trustworthiness, but because of Christ. But there are some of us in this room who don't feel the precarious nature of where we are and who we are. Some of us are not prone to self-loathing, but we're prone to take for granted the grace that God gives to guilty sinners. We think, oh, I believed in Jesus, and so I'm all good. What else do I really need? And we don't understand that God calls us not to have trusted him at some point in the past, but to be trusting him, to be following him, to be clinging to him. And we don't realize just how sinful our hearts are. We don't realize just how dangerous the pits are. How dangerous 
our own desires are. Kids and teens in the room especially, those with parents who, who urge you to be careful where you go, be careful what you see, be careful what you listen to. That's not because your parents don't like you, know, you having fun. That's because your parents know. They've, they've stepped in those holes and they know the danger that's there. This is not just true for kids and teens. It's true for all of us. And incidentally, we need each other. Which is why Barnabas began organizing these Christians in Antioch as a church. Notice how in verse 24, that the phraseology goes from a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And in verse 24, it now says a great many people were added to the Lord. Well, how were they added? And to what were they added? And how did Luke know that there were a great many of them added? Well, this is the same language that was used at the very beginning in Acts chapter 2, when many were added to the Lord on the day of Pentecost. And what was it that Peter called for those who responded to the gospel to do? He told them to believe and to be baptized. To be associated with the Lord Jesus Christ, brought into fellowship with other Christians, to be publicly declared, stamped, as this one is a Christian like the rest. Once again, I'm showing you, look all over the page here. There's the, there's the basic warp and woof of what it looks like to be everyday Christian in the context of local churches, discipling one another, caring for one another, growing alongside one another. And it's just assumed all throughout this passage and it's alluded to all throughout the passage. You'll skip, we'll, we'll, we'll miss it if we're not familiar with it. Luke explicitly calls this gathering of Christians in Antioch, a church in verse 26. And friends, this, this biblical structure and method of Christian discipleship is local church membership. So why do we care so much about talking about church membership at FBC Diana? Is it because we really want to make sure that our numbers are accurate? Well, sure, we do want to do that. We want to make sure that we, that we know who our members are so, so the pastors, elders here know who, who we're responsible for so that you all as members can know who you're responsible to care for as one another. We certainly want to do that. But the reason why we, we pay such close attention to what is church membership, what does it mean to be a church, is because we actually believe that God has intended, that he has purpose behind forming the church in the way that he has. That God's discipleship commission, you know, Jesus telling his disciples to go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching, that God has actually given us the blueprint for how to do that in the local church. And that we don't just invent stuff on our own. So then, if you ask the New Testament, how, how are people counted among Christ's people? Well, they're counted among Christ's people by local churches formally recognizing them as Christ's people. That's how they're counted. How are, how are Christians grown in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, by their association with and connection to and meaningful relationship with a local church. It's the reason why you have local churches. How, how can you, as an individual Christian, help other Christians systematically and repeatedly and faithfully grow in the Lord Jesus. Connect with the local church. The New Testament has this stuff popping up all over the place, both assumed and demonstrated and explicitly taught. And to the point that I've already been talking about here this morning about perseverance, do you want to persevere as a Christian? Ah, oh, brother, sister, connect yourself with a local church that loves you so that there'll be other Christians who are actually taking the time to think about you, who are purposefully and intentionally praying that God would 
preserve you, who are purposefully and intentionally calling you up and asking how you're doing. Not how's your big toe doing, but how's your soul doing? We could talk much more on these kinds of things this morning, but let's continue on with point number four. We see as this passage continues to unfold that these Christians who are being organized by, by Barnabas sort of initially, that even more so the organization is, is forthcoming, and that they're being taught. So being, this new church being taught and organized is what we see even further in verses 25 and 26. Barnabas, when he arrives in Antioch, he's glad. He sees this as a work of the grace of God. He encourages, he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus. Many were added to the Lord, seemingly referring to this formal structure of the local church being established by way of baptizing into and seeing everybody as kind of recognizing who's Christian and who's not. This is, this is where our sort of parameters are as a local church. This is who we are. I know, I know who my brothers and sisters in Christ are. But then Barnabas doesn't just stop with his own efforts. He doesn't then just jet back to Jerusalem once he, once he sees that a local church is established now. But he goes and he finds Saul. Now, there's a lot more backstory here than I know, and certainly more than we have time to say much about this morning. But remember that it was Barnabas who first brought Saul to the disciples in Jerusalem and kind of made the case for Saul to be accepted among the Christians there. Antioch was a good distance away from Jerusalem, so it wasn't so easy to just go and get one of the apostles or a handful of them and bring them up to Antioch. Tarsus was much closer by, and that's where Saul was hanging out. So Barnabas, knowing who Saul was, Barnabas no doubt knowing what Saul's commission was, that he was the one that Jesus had specifically commissioned to be one who would suffer for the name of Christ and who would bring the gospel uh, both far and wide to Jew and to Gentile. Maybe Barnabas had some of that in mind when he went right up the road to Tarsus and said, hey, Saul, I need your help. Come on down here to Antioch and let's teach this fledgling church. He wanted to make sure that there was a strong and healthy church there before he went back. And how do we know that? Because look at verse 26. When Barnabas found Saul, he brought him back to Antioch and they met with the church and taught them for a whole year. He didn't try to go as quickly back to Jerusalem as he could to share the good news of this great missions report, this great evangelistic response, but rather they stayed for a year teaching this young church what it means to believe in Christ and what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. So Saul and Barnabas, they taught these new converts what to believe and how to live. Now, again, this is not explicit in the passage. Luke doesn't tell us this is what Barnabas taught. This is what Saul taught. However, it seems to me that we may reasonably assume at least two things. One, these Gentile converts needed a lot of teaching on the basics of a biblical worldview. They needed to know God's or Christ's word. Jews, regardless of their culture, regardless of their language, they would have grown up hearing the stories of, of Adam and Abraham and Moses and David. They knew the history of Israel. They knew the promises of God. They were as familiar to them as the Star Spangled Banner and the Pledge, Pledge of Allegiance is to many of us in this room. But someone who didn't grow up in that environment, who was totally Gentile, 
They didn't know anything about the God of Israel. They didn't know the promises that God had made. They weren't awaiting a Messiah. They didn't, they didn't see day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year of the sacrificial system teaching them about God's holiness and their unholiness and their need for a sacrifice. And they had all sorts of unbiblical beliefs about human nature, about ethics, about worship, about the family, about sexuality, about virtue. In, in short, preaching the gospel to these Gentiles in Antioch was like moving out of the house they've been living in their whole lives and into a brand new house and saying, you get to live here now. Now, it's a wonderful new house. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is fantastic, but it's new. Stuff is in different places. Rooms aren't where they're supposed to be. And brothers and sisters, I think that we might be surprised to realize that the culture in which we live is far more Gentile than Jewish in this sense. Is far more unfamiliar with the outworking of the biblical storyline than familiar with it. Now, there was a time in Western culture when generally people were more familiar with the biblical worldview. But I don't think that's where we are anymore. And a simple way you can find out, the next time you're hanging out with some of your friends or your family, ask them to list as many of the Ten Commandments as they know. Ask them to summarize any basic Christian doctrine. I'm not talking about explain it. Who could do that? I'm talking about just summarize. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? Summarize that for me. What does it mean that Christ has two natures? Summarize that for me. Tell me the gospel in 60 seconds or less. These are basic truths of Christianity. And yet probably some of us, when I just said those things, you're like, man, I don't know if I could do that right now. We're far more Gentile in our culture. We're, we're far more foreign to a biblical worldview than we might realize. We also see that the teaching and the content in Antioch must not have been all that different. And so the two assumptions I was talking about before, what was it that was actually taught there? Well, one, they needed a lot of teaching. And two, we can assume that the teaching that they received was not all that different than the other churches received whenever Paul and, and Saul, Paul, and others went to do evangelistic efforts elsewhere. And every letter that we have in the New Testament was written to a church, to a pastor, or to be shared among churches. And every single one of them centers on explaining the gospel and urging Christians to faithful living. Every one of the New Testament letters does that. So for 20 minutes this afternoon, you could open up the book of Ephesians. And you can see how the book of Ephesians not only does what I've just said, but it even sort of breaks it down into two halves. The first half, the first three chapters, explain what the gospel is. And the last half, the last three chapters, explain how are Christians supposed to live in light of this. The New Testament just is full of this kind of basic instruction. So we can assume that this is exactly the kind of instruction that those new Christians in Antioch received. And we can see that this kind of diligent teaching had an effect in their lives. That the church members there in Antioch, they were observably and publicly Christ's disciples. How do we know that? Well, in verse 26, Luke tells us that it's in Antioch that the disciples, people who were followers of Jesus, were first called Christians. 
They weren't Jews, so they didn't really fit into the category of a, of a Jewish sect. But they weren't living as average Greeks anymore either. So what do we call these people? What do we call these citizens of Antioch who were Gentile converts, who worshipped the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but who quite clearly also worship and serve Jesus as their God and King? What do we do with these ones who were water baptized in a public display of being associated with Jesus? What could we call these people who gather regularly to learn about Jesus as the Christ, to pray to him as Lord and to worship him as God? What could we call these ones who were former pagans who lived their lives with now a new ethic and a new set of priorities and a new hope-filled purpose? What can we call them? I know, Christians. They're following that Christ. They're ones who are like Jesus. So without any fish bumper stickers, without any screen printed church t-shirts, without any Christian radio stations to tune into, these Christians stood out so distinctly in their own hometown that everybody started calling them by the name of their master. No doubt intended to be a slur when it first was used. This is radical transformation. And this is visible whether you want to make it obvious or not. It just is obvious. Fifth and finally, there was a show of love and generosity. And this basically, it seems to me that you could, you could almost see sort of a shift take place in verse 27. Uh, there's this, this kind of, now there's this other thing that happened. Hey, wait a second, are we, are we switching scenes here? Are we still in the same one? Oh no, it's the same scene. It's the same episode at least, but it's a new scene that's showing us sort of the climax. What's the, what's, the, what's the end outworking of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit as people are being taught to be real, genuine, everyday Christians? What do they do? Well, there's this prophecy of famine that happens in verses 27 and 28. There were some prophets who came down from Jerusalem, which we don't have time to really delve into very much here. Uh, we'll talk more about prophets and prophecy and stuff like that another time. But this one in particular came and he foretold by the Spirit of God that there would be a great famine that was coming. Now, different translations vary slightly on this phrase all over the world in the ESV. The King James says throughout all the world. The Net Bible says the whole inhabited world. The NIV says the entire Roman world. It does seem best to understand this as being a Roman world or a known world famine that was uh, extended. At any rate, though, the famine was going to be painful for the Jews, uh, for the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding region. And what did the church there in Antioch do when they heard this news? There's coming some pain for the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea. They voluntarily raised financial aid. Like the church in Jerusalem had done for one another back in Acts chapter 4, the church in Antioch did for another church far away. It's no small interest that Barnabas was explicitly named back there in Acts chapter 4 as one of those in Jerusalem who sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas was already an example of this kind of generosity. But so too then, the disciples who were there in Antioch, we read in verse 29, they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers, to the Christians living in Judea, again, that, area, that region around Jerusalem. Think on this with me just for a moment as we come down to our, our final moment here. 
the church in Antioch was largely, maybe entirely Gentile. Most of the Jewish Christians who fled Jerusalem and Judea were so socially averse, uh, standoffish to Gentiles that they didn't even share the gospel with them. And yet, Christ had so softened the hearts of those Gentile Christians in Antioch that they voluntarily determined to gather some money among them to send back to the very church who had sent out members previously that most of them weren't even willing to share the gospel with them. That's Christian love. That's Christ's love on display. That's the kind of love that is perfectly exemplified in the cross of Christ and is consistently demonstrated among Christ's people in the world. This is evidence of genuine conversion. When someone who treated you so badly that they were happy that you were cut off, happy to leave you cut off from the promises of God, and you turn around and aim to bless them in return. Friends, the kind of Christianity we've seen and studied this morning is everyday, simple, ordinary Christianity. The gospel of Jesus Christ preached by everyday Christians, creating local churches, which, were, which are animated by Christ's spirit, governed by Christ's word, and motivated by Christ's love. But this kind of Christianity is also supernatural, life-transforming, and something totally different than everything else in the world. May God help us to be that kind of Christian, that kind of local church, right here in our own town. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.